turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. If you have the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1021 to 1022. Again, reminder on the insert uh, inside the worship guide, there is an outline if you want to take notes. In the summer of 1994, I was 13, we packed up the minivan and we headed out west. Big vacation, summer vacation, going out west, going to Yellowstone, going to see all the sights along the way. And this was the days before iPhones and iPads. It's the days before screens in the car, right? 13-year-old, two sisters in the car, right? Like, eternal trip, right? Like, are we ever going to get there? And we all know the line with little kids in the car, are we there yet? Are we there yet? But that trip, we had fun while we were out there, but the way out, the way back felt like an eternity for a teenager cooped up in a vehicle. We've had plenty of those experiences with our own family, international flights, 12 hours in an airplane, layover, three or four more hours to get to where we're going. When are we going to get there, right? Trips to Florida, But it's not just the kids, right? It's not just the kids that say, how long is this going to take? When are we going to get there? And as Christians, our lives in this world can sometimes feel that way too, can it? Lord, how much longer? If you've read the Psalms, you've seen David use these words. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? One thing I hope that you never hear me say up here or perceive me to be saying is stop asking hard questions. Just stop asking God, why is it so hard? No, it's okay. We should ask hard questions. We should say, how long, O Lord? Because the Bible is full of hard questions. And David's hard questions are the equivalent of, are we there yet? How long, O Lord, is our question, are we there yet? In our context, we might ask, why do I keep struggling with the same sin over and over and over in my life? Why is sanctification such a slow and difficult process? Why is life in this world so difficult? When will the pressure and the stress and the anxiety be lifted off of my shoulders? And why is there so much opposition to the gospel from those around us, our friends, our family, and then the culture at large? My main question that I want us to wrestle with this morning is, is there hope during the are we there yet? Is there hope during the are we there yet? 
In other words, has God provided answers for us in his word while we cry out, How long, O Lord? And my argument is, yes, he has. They might not be crystal clear answers. They might not be a formula to tell you exactly what you should do in every situation. But it is a comfort and an assurance in the midst of life's storms to help us wrestle with the question, are we there yet? And all the questions that come with it. We've been in 1 John, going through the book of of 1 John for 13 weeks, right up until the end of May. We've seen John's purpose in writing. In John chapter 5, verse 13, we've talked about this several times. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing so that we would be assured of the hope that we have in Christ of eternal life. John's desire for us as Christians is that we would know Christ, that we would know who we are in Christ because of Jesus and his finished work for us on the cross. So let's continue our journey with John as he addresses this early church and no doubt addresses us, helping us to navigate these troubled waters. And let us see how these words written 2,000 years ago still apply to us in our lives today. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we come to this passage this morning. There is some difficult things here. And we wrestle and we struggle with difficult things in our lives. God, we look to you for hope. We look to you for comfort. We look to you for assurance amidst the storms in our lives. God, asking that you would come this morning, that you would meet with your people, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would remind us of who we are in Christ and what he 
has done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Are we there yet? I think we all can agree that the answer is no. We're going to look at four reasons, if you follow along in the outline, four reasons we're not there yet. And as you look at these reasons, they're all negative statements, but John is going to address the positive elements as well. So we're not only going to dwell on these negative reasons, we're going to be looking at the flip side of each of these. But before we dig in to this passage, I do want us to look at the immediate context of the verses surrounding it. What John has said right before and what he's going to say right after. Verse 17 of chapter 2. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The message is, what we see here, what we experience in this life is not eternal. But we are going to live forever. Verse 28, the message is that Jesus is coming back. Abide in him, remain in him, so that you may have confidence at his appearing. And this helps us with our first couple of verses here, where we see that we're not there yet because antichrists are still coming and going. That's in verses 18 and 19. John begins by saying, Children, it is the last hour. He says, You have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He repeats this phrase, this word, the last hour, at the beginning and the end of this verse. This is the only place in the New Testament that this phrase, that this exact phrase, the last hour, is used just in this one verse two times. But the idea is widespread throughout the New Testament. It's also called the last days. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter says that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The scoffers are saying, you Christians and your fairy tale religion, you believe that some cosmic rescue is coming for you. Get over it. Right? This world is all there is. YOLO. Right? Live it up. To which we say, no, we reject that. And we cling to Jesus and we cling to his promises. Where is the promise of his coming? He's already given it to us. And we hold on to him still 2,000 years later. Do you know what the last words spoken by Jesus are in the Bible? If you've got the Pew Bible and you flip all the way to Revelation 21, you've got the red letters there, you can see it very easily. Second to last verse in the Bible, surely I am coming soon. And maybe you think, well, it doesn't feel like it, Jesus, right? 
Forget 2,000 years of history. What about my life? Right? Doesn't feel like you're coming soon. Doesn't feel like you're rescuing me from the trials and the temptations that I face in my life. You might ask sometimes along with the scoffers, where is the promise of his coming? And John wants to point you to evidence that we're in the last hour and that Jesus is coming soon. He says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. In fact, many Antichrists have come. Well, how is that reassuring? How does that help us as we wait? It confirms what Jesus said in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse when he talked about the signs of the end of the age. Matthew 24, verse 4 and 5, Jesus said, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. In verses 23 to 25, he says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. There's a lot of confusion over this idea of the Antichrist. And we'll talk a little bit more later about the identity of the Antichrist or Antichrists. But John is the only one who uses this term in the New Testament. He's the only one that uses this term Antichrist. And it's similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 24 there, false Christ or lying Christ. But John says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Now that probably refers to an individual. But then he says, actually, many Antichrists have come. And this is how we know that it is the last hour. Many Antichrists have come. And then there's more evidence in verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And this word continued here is very important in this passage. This is the word abide. Okay? It's the word that was used in verse 17 that we're told to abide. It's the word that was used in verse 28 to abide. And we're going to see it five times throughout this passage. It is the word abide in, in the Greek. So they have not abided with us. They went out from us and they have not remained or abided with us. John earlier in this chapter has emphasized this. In verse 6, whoever says he abides in him... Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Second half of verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And then again in verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever remains forever. The Antichrists are not abiding. They are not continuing with John and those who abide in Christ. They are actually against Christ. That's what this means, that this prefix anti. It means that they are against 
Christ's, where we get our prefix in English, anti. We have anti all these things, right? Against Christ. They seek to stand in his place. And John says that they are not of us. So John's message and encouragement to us essentially is, don't be surprised that people come and go out of the church. People that claim to be with us, and then it becomes plain that they are not of us, that they do not abide in Christ. And this can be a very painful thing. I think most of us have probably experienced this. If you've walked with Christ for any length of time, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've probably experienced this. At our community group on uh, Thursday night, we had several people sharing about whether it was siblings or people from their past, from their childhood, people they have known, people who have professed faith in Christ who are now very far from him and who are not walking with him. So this is a difficult thing that a lot of us wrestle with and struggle with. We've seen people led away by false teaching. And this hopefully is, and I think should be one of those things that causes us to cry out, how long, O Lord? We see people abandoning the faith. We see people going out from among us. And we say, why? We plead with them to come back. We plead with them to return. And sometimes they don't. And all we can say is, how long, O Lord? And thankfully, John does not leave us hanging in despair. The second thing we're going to see is we're not there yet because people still do not know the truth. Verses 20 and 21, John reassures the Christians that he is writing to in these verses. He says, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. Two questions that come up here. What, is it, what does it mean here to be anointed? And who is the Holy One? The original language here literally reads, you have the anointing. And the anointing is from the Holy One. So let's look at these in reverse order. Let's first ask, who is the Holy One? Eight times in the New Testament, this phrase is used, the Holy One. Seven times, it's for sure referring to Jesus. One time, it's probably referring to the Father. So I think we can say with confidence, the Holy One of God is Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 24, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's in the synagogue teaching when a man with an unclean spirit stands up and, and says, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Then Jesus casts out the demon and everyone is amazed at his authority. John chapter 6, passage we're probably familiar with. It's in one of our songs, Where Else Can We Go, Lord? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Many of his disciples, starting in verse 66, turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Why do I share these two examples? Those who are against Christ, namely demonic spirits who acknowledge that he is the Holy One of God, and those who do not turn back and who no longer walk with him, but follow him and abide in him, those who confess that he is the Holy One of God, those who walk with him, those who abide with him and do not turn away, they confess that he is the Holy One of God. So those who know him, remember the demon said, I know who you are. The demon knew who he was and confessed you are the Holy One of God. Those who do not turn away and who who do not leave, they stay, they abide, and they confess you are the Holy One of God. It is those who have the anointing that is the Holy Spirit. And John writes his purpose in writing is because they know the truth. Verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. How do they know this truth? How do they remain? How do they abide in the truth? Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 is very instructive here. I love this prayer. Um, as we've said, First John is paralleled by many of the things in John chapter 14 through 17. Uh, Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. Again, I would encourage you to spend some time digging into that passage. But in John chapter 17, beginning, beginning in verse 14, this is Jesus' prayer for his disciples. He said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This idea that Jesus prays here for in the world but not of it is what we talked about last week. And notice the work of our triune God to keep us and to sanctify us. Jesus prays to the Father. He prays on behalf of his followers that they would be kept, that they would remain, that they would abide, that the spirit that he would send would be in them and be with them. John 14, that's what Jesus prayed, that the spirit of truth would abide and dwell with us and be in us, that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart in truth, and that we would know and have assurance that we are in him and that we belong to him because of the work that Jesus was going to accomplish on the cross. Christianity is not a religion of trying harder. It's not a religion of, I need to just pull myself up by my bootstraps and keep being sanctified, and if I don't, God's not going to love me. It's not about making sure I'm doing enough to please God so that we can have confidence before him that we belong to Jesus. We already have that confidence because of what 
God has done for us in Christ. We do belong to him. We do know him. We do abide in him. If you are in Christ, you are in the truth, and you know the truth, and the truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is the truth, and we know him. So we're not there yet because there are still people who do not know Jesus, who is the truth. Which leads us to our next point. We're not there yet because people are still denying Jesus Christ. Now John has been very suggestive up until this point about those who went out from them. His phrases have been things like, if we say and whoever says, and he's talking to the people he's writing to, but kind of indirectly addressing those who have gone out. Suggesting that those people are liars, that they walk in darkness. But now John is going to come out swinging. Verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. There's a contrast here between denying Jesus and confessing Jesus. And John is not just making this stuff up. He's not just creating some new categories for what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. These words came from the lips of Jesus himself. Jesus said in, Mark, in Matthew 10, So everyone who acknowledges me, it's the same word for confess, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. John is going to address this same idea again in chapter 4. This will give us some more insight into the nature of our confession and the seriousness of the denial when people deny Christ. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. If you confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, John says, that is the work of the Spirit of God versus the work of the Spirit of this world, the Spirit of the Antichrist. You cannot say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit of God. Again, we're going to hold off our guesses on who the Antichrist is until the next section. So if you're eager, keep listening. But for now, I want us to be able to answer the question, how can I know that I am a Christian? How can I know that I am in Christ? In Romans 10, 9, Paul writes, 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, same word here, confess, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To confess Jesus as Lord means not to deny him. It's to acknowledge him before men. It's to confess that he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Don't be an antichrist. Don't deny that Jesus is the Christ, but confess that he is the Christ. And you're a Christian. Confess and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. So if you're struggling with that question, if you're struggling with assurance, am I really a Christian? How can I know I'm a Christian? Confess that Jesus is Lord. Confess that he's the only Savior. He's the only one who can forgive you of your sins. It's only by his death, burial, and resurrection that you can know that you have eternal life. Being a Christian means being a follower of Christ. And if you have not yet confessed Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as your Savior, and believed in him, I want you to ask yourself, what is stopping me? Why am I not trusting in Christ? Why am I not confessing that Jesus is the Lord? This statement here by John, he says, if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you are a liar. Those might sound like harsh words, but God has revealed himself to us. He has revealed himself in his word. He has revealed himself in history, in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. It's obvious. There's plenty of evidence. There's no denying it. And John says, if you continue to deny it, you're a liar. And you're calling God a liar. We saw that a couple weeks ago. So friend, if that's you, please don't leave here today without doing business with God. Don't leave here without making the confession that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is my only hope. Jesus is the Savior. I would love to talk with you about that more if that's, that's where you're at. John's encouragement to those who do confess that Jesus is the Christ comes in verses 24 and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. What you heard from the beginning, this is what John begins his letter with. What you heard from the beginning is the gospel. It's the truth about who Jesus is. It's the message about his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, And that all those who confess their sins and believe in him have eternal life. That is what you have heard from the beginning. John says, let that abide in you. Let that remain in you, that truth. And then in verse 25, he talks about the promise that we have. This literally reads, and this is the promise that he promised to us. Unfortunately, sometimes the translators of the ESV don't like to have too much repetition. But I love that 
This is literally how it reads. This is the promise that he promised to us. John reiterates it. It's not just a, you know, oh, yeah, I kind of promised. No, it's the promise that he promised to us. He doubles down and reiterates that to emphasize that God is the one who has made this promise. And the promise is eternal life. John says, remember this hope. Remember this promise. Keep on confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and stand strong in light of the last. We're not there yet. Finally, we're not there yet because people are still trying to deceive us. Verses 26 and 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. I'll I'll stop there for now. Who is trying to deceive us? Well, it's the Antichrists, right? And who is that? It's anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ and that he has come in the flesh. And I think if John were here today and he were writing to the churches in America, I think his message to evangelical, American evangelicals would go something like this. Put away your end times charts and stop watching YouTube videos trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. It's not Obama, and it's not Oprah, and it's not Trump. Don't be deceived by those claiming to be Christians who are trying to teach you these crazy things. People are trying to deceive you. Wake up. That's the negative side of John's argument. What's the positive side? Verse 27. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. John says, you received the anointing from Jesus Christ, and it, the anointing, the Holy Spirit, abides in you. But what does John mean here when he says, you don't need anyone to teach you? He's not saying that you are your own authority. He's not saying go out in your tree stand with your Bible and come up with your own interpretation. You don't need anyone else. He's not saying that God hasn't called pastors and teachers to teach his word to his people. But he's saying you don't need to listen to this nonsense from these deceivers, the things that they're throwing at you, because the Holy Spirit is in you and he will teach you. In John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. This is a huge part of the Protestant Reformation. 
that individual Christians can sit down with their Bibles and they can read their Bibles and they can understand it because they have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. Now, it doesn't mean there's not a right interpretation. It doesn't mean you shouldn't go to church and hear the word being taught. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be in your Bible studies. But it means you don't, you don't need to go to that authority to know the word and to understand the word because you have the Spirit of God living inside of you as a Christian. And Jesus promised that his spirit would come and would declare all things to us. There's a great play on words here um, throughout this, this passage. We see this word here, the anointing that you have, that you receive from him, abides in you. The word for anointing is has the same root word as the, the root word for Christ. Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. Christ means anointed one. And that word is a picture back to the Old Testament where they rubbed oil on things to anoint them. The high priest was anointed with oil. The king was anointed with oil. And that picture points forward to Jesus being the Messiah, being the anointed one. So, anointed, first I'll talk about Antichrist. Antichrist is opposed to Christ. It's opposed to the anointed one. And then we are told that we have the anointing. We are anointed by the Spirit. So we share in Christ, right? We are Christians. So those words are all combined Anointing, Christ, Antichrist, Christian, they all have the same root word. Christians are followers of the anointed one who are anointed with the Holy Spirit who is in us and who is true. Then John closes here with the same imperative, the same command that he's going to give in the next verse, in verse 28, which we'll open with next week. Just as it has taught you, Just as the Spirit who is in you has taught you, abide in Him. So we see this theme over and over, this theme of abiding in Him, remaining in Him by the Spirit whom He has given us. Are we there yet? No. And though many people may be going out from among us, not continuing to abide in Him, What we have heard from the beginning, the good news of our salvation by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that abides in us, and we abide in the Son and in the Father, and His Spirit abides in us. The triune God has come and made His residence in us, both individually and as a people. God dwells among us. He dwells among his people. We abide together in him. So brothers and sisters, while we wait, while we long, while we ask how long, O Lord, while we see others deny Jesus, while we face the deceptive efforts of the evil one and of false teachers, we are primarily encouraged to do one thing, abide in him, remain in 
him, continue walking with him. And I can't think of a sweeter picture of that than what we are about to partake of here in the Lord's Supper. Jesus' words are so instructive for us here. In Matthew chapter 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Listen to these next words. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day we are called to abide in him. Until that day, We are called to eat and drink and remember and proclaim his death until he comes. Jesus says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. And he's talking about the literal fruit of the vine, right? He's talking about wine. He's talking about wine that comes from grapes, the fruit of the vine. But there is also a figurative fruit of the vine that Jesus speaks about. And I want to remind us that this table is not just for those who are members at Living Stone. It's not just for those who have been with us or identify with us. It's for anyone who trusts in Christ, anyone who walks with him and follows him and abides in him. I want to read from John chapter 15. And as I'm reading this, I would just invite you to to quiet your heart if you want to close your eyes, meditate on, on this. And I want you to ask yourself, is this true of me? Am I in Christ? Am I in the vine? Am I abiding in him and remaining in him? And if it is, and if that's you, then you're invited to come to this table. And if you say, I don't, I don't really know. Maybe I'm not there yet. I don't, I don't know if I really trust Christ. I don't know if this is true of me and my life then we would ask that you would refrain. We ask that you would, you would stay in your seat and not come forward to take the elements. So again, Jesus talked about the literal fruit of the vine. Now he's going to talk about a different fruit of the vine. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may, be, it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. 
and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You're invited, when you're ready, to come to the table, if the servers could come down at this point. Uh, We have gluten-free bread. Uh, There's white grape juice around the outside, red wine on the inside. Please take the elements, return to your seat, and we will all partake together.